Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Uh, as you saw in the intro there, I intimidated Austin Peterson with my perfect 70s porn stash. So I went back to the full beard and then he just got rid of everything. But we're back together again. Austin, how you doing, man? <laughs> hey, all right, man. Yeah, no, I had one just a minute ago, but when I got on here with you, it just ran away scared, pissing its pants. <laughs> I can't blame it. You know, I mean, I understand the intimidation factor behind my facial hair. So good to see you, um, <laughs> to see you too, man. Uh, when I had you on last time, we were talking about um, we were talking about mutually assured destruction. And that's something that I have felt in the past is a good thing because it has prevented any major countries from going into an all out war like World War Two again since that time i mean we've had proxy wars we've had escalations building up of weapons these crazy arms races but we haven't had a conflict as big or as deadly as world war ii since then and now that's really being put to the test my theory is really uh you know really on the ropes now because we we're hearing from ukraine and russia that one of them might set off a dirty bomb and who knows where that'll go but I was wondering what you think about that whole situation now, because um, you kind of agreed with me at the time. Do you, are you nervous about that now? Are you like, hmm, I don't know if this was a good idea? Or what are your thoughts? I am a little nervous about it. And uh, the reason why is because, you know, I always try and consult the, you know, the greatest minds in the liberty movement before I, you know, decide what my views are going to be on something to, you know, I... I've spoken to J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine and Judge Andrew Napolitano of the Judging Freedom podcast. And both of them are deeply concerned about the possibility that Vladimir Putin might use tactical nuclear weapons uh, in order to protect his position uh, as leader of Russia. You see, the, the problem that we're facing right now is that, you know, Putin is more dangerous in a losing position in Ukraine than he would be if he was in a, if he were in a winning position in Ukraine. And, you know, I don't want Putin to win. You know, I, I think that, you know, essentially he's he's initiated a violent war. You know, he's launched an interventionist conflict. And if, you know, Joe Biden were to do something like this, you or I or I think any libertarian would call him out. And I think that, you know, Putin deserves to be called out for this as well. Um, uh, the problem is that, you know, just from a strategic perspective, Putin is losing and he's losing badly. And, you know, knowing that he's not a, an elected leader, that in order for him to hold on to power, he has to hold on to power through strength, you know, losing this conflict or not or at least not achieving the goals that he that he's pushed for puts him in, the, in a scenario where he might feel like he needs to use nuclear weapons in order for him to just to hold on to his position of power. And that's what madmen do, right? That's what, you know, when you, when you don't have a constitution and you don't have a, tra a peaceful transfer of power, regardless of, you know, whether or not your country is in conflict, when you have a, you know, a, a military dictatorship, which is essentially what P Putin sits at the top of, or an oligopoly, then you have that that danger that Putin, in order to secure his position, might want to use nukes. And frankly, that has uh, made me quite worried. You know, when when I when you have cool heads like in the liberty movement, you know, not not the hot heads, not the you know the people who are out there who are just trying to get clicks online or just generate you know controversy. When you have the cooler heads like J.D. Tuchili and Judge Napolitano talking about where to get these radioactive thyroid tablets to, you know, iodine tablets to protect your thyroid in the case of a nuclear strike, 
then you have to start actually worrying. So, um, you know, I actually have done a little bit of prepping in the last couple of months for this reason, just, in, you know, in case of, of danger. And I recommend other people do the same uh, because I, knowing that Putin is losing right now, I think it is possible that he does go for the nuke button in order to protect his position. Again, not be, because he can't achieve his strategic goals from a traditional military action, I'm I'm worried that he might actually do something in order to protect himself. And I'm not quite sure what the solution is to that. So uh, from the perspective of the U.S. government, what do you want President Biden to be doing in this time? What would you like to see Congress be doing in this time? I, I've noticed that in the last couple of days, some of the temperature in the room has switched to the Democrats. Uh, there, I think there's 30 House Democrats who are now urging Biden to sit down with Putin and try to come to some sort of agreement. But if you if you had actually won the presidential election in 2016 and you were in this same scenario right now, what would you be trying to do and what would you hope Congress would be doing in this time? Well, first things versus, you know, on matters of national security, Biden should keep his mouth shut and not be talking to people publicly about what his strategy should be. I mean, you know, he needs to go and read the, you know, the art of war and understand basic strategy. You don't go to a fundraiser and start talking about the possibility of nuclear war with your donors and not think that that's going to leak out to the press. If you're going to have those kinds of conversations, you have it with your national security cabinet and you assure the American people that everything is being done to safeguard their security because, you know, being an American a first type libertarian the, the number one you know the number one issue should be the peace and safety and security of the american people first and if that means that you know you have to go to the negotiating table with putin that might then that means then so be it but that should be done from a position of strength but unfortunately because you know the you know, the reality of the situation, you know, knowing that, you know, I don't have dementia and I'm not president of the United States, obviously <laughs> yeah. my strategy would be completely different than what we have with Joe Biden, who is, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately for the people of the United States, he's not capable of conducting the type of real politic or the type of, you know, uh, negotiating from strength that Ronald Reagan would have done if he were president of the United States. And even Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's confirmed, but was still able to argue from a position of strength in order to hold the Soviet Union at bay. Now, are the circumstances of the 1980s and today analogous? I don't think so. Um, but the, the fitness of the commander in chief is a big question here. So I, I think the reason why Putin felt like he could get away with doing what he was doing was because of the lack of fitness, the lack of strength. I don't think that if Donald Trump had remained the president of the United States, I don't think we would be in this scenario. I mean, what I think a lot of people fail to understand, and this mostly comes from people of you know who who tend to be more on the the peacenik side of things, right? And I'm not just trying to be critical here. I'm just trying to, you know, offer an analysis is as there's sometimes that there's a lack of understanding that, you know, things like saber rattling or appearing strong, you know, like you say, mutually assured destruction to a point, you know, deters an enemy from taking an action, right? If an enemy thinks that you will take an action, or Richard Nixon would have called this the crazy bastard strategy, right? If your enemy thinks that you're going to do something, then they won't take an action, right? They won't, you know, they won't attack a position of strength because they think that that will, you know, result in harm for them. And, and the problem is, is that we're in a scenario where our commander in chief is quite obviously weak. Uh, and so Putin felt emboldened by that. And so we're now in a situation where Putin 
you know, is operating in a position of strength and the United States is in a position of weakness. So there's what I would have done in a fantasy world where a libertarian becomes president of the United States in 2016. And it, you know, wasn't Gary Johnson. It was me. Um, but you know, under the internet, that scenario, you know, you simply have to sometimes saber rattle. You have to sometimes behave like Donald Trump. And this was what I think the, the lesson was of 2016 that I, I feel like libertarians really haven't learned yet is that you do have to come from a position of strength and you have to you have to look like you're prepared to do violence, even if you don't want to, even if you are a non-interventionist like us, even if you are philosophically a libertarian who wants peace, if you are a dove, like I am, like you are, like like mm -hmm. many others and, and other people who are libertarians. But just because you want peace doesn't What's the old uh, the George Washington quote that he had? It was uh, in, in Latin, "Civi pacem parabellum." If you want peace, prepare for war. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. Um, how do you how do you saber rattle and come from a position of strength without being too aggressive? Like, where's the balance there between showing your enemy that you're ready and you mean business versus you know being cavalier? I guess. Well, I think um, it, it was a mistake to remove, uh, to ask Ukraine not to have nuclear weapons, right? So I think uh, some people would say if they had them now, then they would use them, right? But I think that the reality is, is that we, if we had not removed these strategic missiles, if we had not made these kind of promises about the defense of Ukraine, we wouldn't be in the scenario we have right now. It's kind of like, you know, the gun-free zone question that we have here. We had a school shooting here in St. Louis yesterday in a gun-free zone. You know, we had school resource officers. None of them were carrying weapons. Russia did what they thought they could get away with because they believed Ukraine to be defenseless. And to a certain degree, they were correct. Now, they made a big error and miscalculation in just how much the international community would react. I mean, we've, we've essentially got a NATO-like response without having a NATO response. I mean, Russian planes are being shot down. The weapons that are being given to Ukrainian soldiers are quite effective. And I, I do love the uh, irony and hypocrisy uh, that we're you know, giving these fully automatic weapons to you know, civilians in Ukraine to defend themselves, and we can't have them here in the United States, but that's neither here nor there. But at the topic at hand, you know, the, the Ukrainians should have never been disarmed in the first place. You know, Ukraine should have been garrisoned in such a way so as to be able to defend themselves adequately from an invasion that would, I believe, would have never happened if we hadn't asked them to disarm in the first place. Gotcha. So what role do you think the United States should play now? I mean, we are technically part of NATO. If they attack a NATO country, we are contractually obligated to intervene. But if you could control things, would you try to withdraw the United States from NATO at this point? Or is it too late? What would your strategy be? What do you think we should do? I think, you know, in an ideal world where we don't have the threat of, of Russian and Chinese militarism, I would like to see the United States with reduced um, uh, obligations overseas. I do think that NATO has served its purpose. I, I was watching an episode of Bill Maher's show um, a couple of months ago where he talked about the big mistake that was made after the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, I think he makes a really good point, which is that you know we should have, instead of bolstering NATO at that time, instead of taking an even stronger stance toward Russia at the time, we should have supported a more democratic transfer of power 
through the Soviet Union to a more, you know, Republican form of government at the time. But instead, the United States and NATO took an even more aggressive tone, you know, uh, towards Russia, which led them to be more reactive and to set up the sort of, you know, fascistic or, you know, what you might call imperialistic, you know, state that they have right now. I mean, really, it's a corporatist oligarchy, if we're being completely uh, you know, technical about how Russia operates. But I mean, it, it, what I what I don't really like and appreciate, I know this, you know, is going to make me no friends, but I don't believe that there's a moral comparison between the United States and Russia. And, and I and the reason why I think that is because despite the fact that, you know, the, the allegations of the Hillary Clinton body count, you know, the Putin has his his uh, opponents killed. He, you know, he, Anna Politskovaya and uh, Alexander Litvinenko, uh, you know, and, and he is a very dangerous person and someone that absolutely has to be opposed. But Putin could have been avoided in the past. And you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think Bill Maher is right in that we made a mistake in that critical period after the fall of the Soviet Union, that we should have been a part of a reformation process and a transfer uh, to a peaceful Republican form of government uh, of Russia, rather than to you know continue to treat them like the Soviet Union. Now again, that's hindsight being twenty twenty. The situation is what it is right now, and we have to deal with it as it is. You know, very simply, you know, we probably ought to listen to what Elon Musk is saying, what he's talking about, and you know. Peace doesn't come necessarily on a, a terms of total surrender and complete subjugation. Not every conflict is World War II, right? Not every conflict has to end with a, the signing of the document on the USS Missouri and the, right. you know, the, the, the conflict with the, you know, a mushroom cloud and, and a signing of a peace uh, and total surrender. It's not, you know, again, not everything is World War II. The problem is, is that, you know, Western culture is so obsessed with this conflict, and so is Eastern culture. I mean, Russia still calls it the Great Patriotic War, that everybody sees everything in these terms. But this modern conflict is not World War II. So between Russia and Ukraine, what are our options? Well, there's going to have to be some concessions given on both sides in order for, and this is, again, something that I know our libertarian friends don't like, but there has to be a compromise made. Somebody's going to have to give up something uh, each side are going to have to cede something in order for us to have peace, unless you want it to escalate, in which case really what you're advocating for is more destruction, more death and more killing. But if you want to reduce conflict, if you want to de-escalate, then we're going to have to talk about what e either side needs to concede. So last question on Ukraine. Uh, do you think the United States holds a large part of the responsibility for leading to this position in the first place. You've laid out some of it, what we could have done in the past. But in the last few years, uh, with the coup in Ukraine and things like that, do you think that we are largely responsible for pushing us to the brink of this conflict? I think the United States has played a, a part uh, in the escalation of this conflict, but Vladimir Putin's plans, you know, we're, you know, we're always going to be antagonistic to the United States, no matter what we did, you know, and, you know, in the sort of the push and pull of the conflict between Russia and the United States, you know, the question is, how much do you have to, to push versus how much do you have to pull, right? The, the push for the, the, the coup was a push, Right. And, you know, falling back would be a pull. Right. Or asking for some kind of a peace terms would be a pull in this scenario. So Vladimir Putin is acting in his own best interests. The United States is acting in what we believe to be our own perceived best interests, or at least, you know, our representatives in the government. Uh, you know, if you still believe in, you know, the concept of a, of a representative a Republican form of government that exists in the United States, 
which I know a lot of people who probably watch your show probably don't, but you know, assuming that you did, then uh, the United States, you know, absolutely plays a hand in it. But it becomes this scenario where you have to ask yourself, you know, you know, who's responsible for what? Who's responsible for this? Who's responsible for that? Can the United States take some take a lot of the blame? Certainly. But Russia can take a lot of the blame as well. But it's kind of like the conflict between, you know, Native Americans and, you know, the federal government in the United States. You know, the United States won the conflict, so they're painted as the bad guy. But there was plenty of push and pull between the Native Americans and the colonists and the people who were settling there. There were plenty of uh, of evils that were done on both sides. So the question is now is, you know, can we look beyond what's happened in the past and we can we come up with a solution that will actually lead us to peace now that doesn't involve more killing and more bodies, right? So uh, unfortunately, the reality of war is it means that there's going to have to be a concession on their side that they've that they that they're going to fall back in some way and then we're going to have to say that we fall back in some way now the united states being you know uh, by some terms an arguable measurably the most powerful nation in the world the united states is probably not going to ever admit that it played a hand in it but what happened in you know was it early 2000 and 2013 that uh, the first uh, coup happened in Ukraine yeah, and a lot of this was set yeah. up. Yeah. yeah, if you want to say America can take the blame for for what happened, you know, you could take the blame for you know making security promises to Ukraine and asking them to take out uh, the the missiles that would have protected them from something like this. So yeah, you could say they take the blame in disarming them and making these kinds of security assurances that got us into the situation in the first place. The problem, of course, is that with our democratic form of government, the people who are in power um, now aren't necessarily the people who were in power then. Yeah, was Joe Biden involved in Ukraine back then? Has he been a senator since before you or I were alive? Yes, absolutely. So you could say, you know, to some extent that those people were in power, but he wasn't president of the United States yet. You know, we have a completely different form of government than Russia, where Vladimir Putin was in power. He was calling the shots back then in 2013. So, you know, I don't buy into this whole, oh, it's the Americans' fault, oh, it's, uh, it's you know, it's the United States' fault, because... Vladimir Putin was there at the time, too, and Vladimir Putin has been involved in uh, uh, making calling the shots for far longer than Joe Biden has been calling the shots in Ukraine. So I think that the majority of the blame lies on Russia's shoulders. Gotcha. Where I definitely agree with you is a lot of libertarians will selectively look at something from a geopolitical kind of dumbed down perspective and then look at another scenario with a complete anarchist, um, you know, and Kapistan view. So, for example, I, I talk about World War II a lot. I think we could have avoided getting into World War II, but after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, I mean, realistically, what do you expect? <laughs> you expect us to still stay out of the war? So they'll 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 use an unrealistic scale to judge the United States, but then say that you know Russia is justified in this because, from a dumbed down geopolitical perspective, they're protecting their own interests. It's like okay. You can't really have it both ways, you know, like you can't be an anarchist to your own government and then be a geopolitical analyst to another government. I think it needs to be applied. Equally. What do you think I that am... comes from? Reed, I would be sure I would be, you know, because this is always what put me at, at odds with I won't say necessarily the anarchist movement, but I mean, you know, the liberty movement in general, you know, if if uh, if I rub people the wrong way, it's because I sort of point out those same things as well. You know, it's in some ways, it's almost like an oppositional defiance disorder, right, where it's like it, it, it's it, and, and in many ways, I think it's intellectually dishonest 
in that they they really do believe that the United States is the great Satan. They agree with Vladimir Putin that the West is the great Satan, and the, uh, it, it, the United States is the is the cause of the end all be all for all conflict in the world. As if as if the United States operates in a, in a vacuum with total impunity, and it isn't isn't in many ways reacting to the to the behavior of other rogue nations. I mean, it's not to say that the United States hasn't committed great sins and shouldn't be less involved in the world. I think that, you know, in terms of, you know, policing the world, I completely agree with that. You know, I agree with libertarian foreign policy to a large extent. But there's, you know, why do you think that is that so many in the libertarian movement apply that, in, you know, they prize and value consistency so much, but they have a real politic view of international, uh, of international actions, but then an anarchist view of their own government. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I get accused of that sometimes too. But with me, the way I really look at things is I have no control over the Chinese government or the, you know, the Cuban government or the Russian government or any adversary. The only place I have any amount of control is in what the United States government does. And even that, my control is obviously very limited. I mean, I could vote and I can, you know, shame my own countrymen about what my own government does. But do you vote? What's that? I do vote. Yeah, you, um, you, you vote. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm an I'm a statist bootlicking cuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually voted in a Republican uh, primary a couple months ago, so I'm really a fucking wow, dude. That's <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the GOP. Yeah, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. I actually wanted to talk about that next. Was uh, what you think about the midterms? Like, I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm younger than you, not by a lot, but I feel like we've never been this polarized and things have never been this weird during my lifetime. Um, and, you know, I, I, I never used to see families get torn apart over politics. They'd get torn apart over like some random thing that happened in their life, some personal grievance or something. But it was never over your political opinions. You'd put it aside that, that was where the crazy uncle joke at Thanksgiving came from, because your crazy uncle is the one who's making a big deal out of it when the rest of you have put it aside to eat turkey together. But now your crazy uncle is everybody like you can't even see some of your friends if you don't have the same political views or some of your family members. Um, do you think we're going to be able to put this behind us or is this like the new trajectory for the United States? Do you think we're going to be this polarized over this shit forever or is this just a phase we're going through? Man, that's a great question, Reed. And we kind of touched on this on my um, appearance on TimCast last Friday night. I was talking to Tim Poole about the question of the polarization of the people in the United States. And, you know, I asked the the, the question to the roundtable to vote on whether or not you believe that we should have a national divorce. And surprisingly, the only person who thought that we should was Luke Rudkowski, who's kind of like the resident anarchist over there. But Tim Poole didn't think that we should have a national divorce. Ian Crossland didn't think we should have a national divorce. The new producer over there, Serge, said, you know, said no to a national divorce. And, and so, you know, knowing that probably the majority of people don't think that we need to break the United States into independent sovereign republics, then you have to ask yourself this question, how do we get along? And how do we kind of go forward working with people? I mean, how do you have a, share a country with people who call you semi-fascist? I read a really great piece the other day about a guy who 
you know, he's a writer for, I think, the American Conservative or American Greatness. And, you know, people like neocons and, you know, establishment Republicans and stuff have been calling him, a, you know, a fascist or a Nazi. And then they'll greet him in public like, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a while and stuff like that. And it's like, dude, why are you why are you talking to me like you haven't been calling me Nazi like all night? Yeah. Like you think this is all a big joke, right? And there is a segment of people in politics for whom this really is just a game, Reed, that 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 they're stoking up this, this fear and this division and this hatred and they do this as a game. I mean, think about all of the, how many political influencers do you see, right, with their tits hanging out on Instagram, right? Like vote for, you know, vote for Donald Trump and they're pushing their tits out and it's like, you know, for the, it's a game to them, right? It's about, you know, it's a popularity contest to them, right? And so for them, it's it's frivolous. The, their engagement in politics and in, in the media is frivolous, right? It's it's a campaign for money and fame for them. They, they care nothing about the, the ideology or the base principles or the root of what it is that people like yourself and myself are fighting for, right? These are people who will post, you know, a Ludwig von Mises meme that came, that got handed them from whatever think tank or organization, you know, handed to them to post on their Instagram account that day, but they have no idea the deeper concept or principles. And these are people that can easily be led astray. So politics has become sort of a, of a spectator sport to a large degree, and more people are, are getting involved in it. And it's, it's become, politics has become the national pastime. You know, and I, you know, I do tease, you know, my friends who love football about, you know, the sports ball and the bread and circuses of the games and things like that. But quite frankly, I much prefer people be, you know, distracted by or entertained by sports rather than politics, because, you know, I, for years, we got, I, I think what happened was we pushed this whole narrative of everybody needs to get registered to vote. Everybody needs to get involved. And I think I probably fell victim to that, you know, that thought that what we really just need is to get more people involved. But that's not really what the founding fathers believed. You know, that's not really what the great men who founded this country believed. They believed that a little small intellectual elite of people should have voting power and should be the ones who are making the decisions because most people don't have the time or the energy to actually sit down and consider the philosophical implications of policies that they would implement. As a matter of fact, and, you know, I know we don't live by this today and this is probably going to get me canceled, but the founding fathers thought that only wealthy landowner, you know, landowners and white males should be able to vote. Maybe we don't need to go that far. Right. Maybe. But maybe, you know, there do need to be some barriers to entry to be able to vote. Maybe the problem is mass democracy. Maybe the issue is that we've we've made everything about the issues. Maybe people need more bread and circuses to distract you know, to distract them or something more to do because they're just so goddamn bored read and so what else do you have if you have nothing else to do with your life all the karens in the world you know if if you know if, if the problems in your community are solved if you're fed you're fat you're you're not going hungry if you're not starving to death if if your hierarchy of needs is getting towards the top of that pyramid what are you really looking to accomplish in life well you ask yourself well maybe i should get involved in politics right and so that's kind of what you have we have a nation of people who are who are you know bored with their regular entertainments and they see politics as a spectator sport and they say to themselves i should get involved here and i should project my insecurities into the world through democracy, right? And because we've so lionized democracy in our public schools, because we've so advanced this concept of mass participation and more people voting and more people getting involved and stuff like that, you have the natural impact of that because most people, most people are not the elite. Most people tend to are, are you know, are, are tend to be, there's the patricians and there's the plebes. 
right? And so when you get more plebes getting involved, should there be social mobility? Absolutely. Should there be people who should be able to rise to the top and, you know, become Caesar to a certain extent, right? If I could turn a phrase on that one. Sure. Um, should the patricians rule over us, you know, lord, you know, in a lordly manner, in a monarchical way? No, I don't believe that. There should be democratic aspects to a Republican form of government. But I think a lot of the rancor and I think a lot of the discord comes to the fact that the people are bored and they see politics as just another football or they see it as another you know game of tennis or whatever sport you you know you want to use here as a metaphor and, and so they get involved with it not knowing the implications of the policies they push because you know they get swayed by a, a campaign that says you know we need to ban guns and you know the democrats are very good at telling stories they're very good at weaving a narrative and conservatives are not very good at telling stories they're not very good at weaving narratives. And so they lose slowly to the liberals, you know, while the libertarians are, you know, having an argument about, um, you know, the age of consent. <laughs> we're, we're focusing on the important stuff, man. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So last question. We got the midterms right around the corner. What are you hoping to see? Does it not matter? Just what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I hope to see Republicans, you know, take the majority in the House. It would be nice if we take the Senate, but I, I don't think that that'll happen. You know, we need to chase in the Democrats. The problem, of course, is that uh, Joe Biden is not Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton would have been a, a far better person to have in the, the White House now at this point in time, because after they lost the midterms in the 90s, you know, they came back and instituted Newt Gingrich's plan for America and and uh, said the era of big government was over and we saw you know civil service reform and and welfare reform and you know it was you know it was a good time to be a to be a freedom lover with a democratic president and a republican congress because if you look at studies out of the cato institute you see that government grows the slowest when you have a democratic president and a republican congress so divided right. government is best so we will see a divided government i think in our best case scenario a democratic um, a Democratic president and hopefully a Republican House and Congress. And that would mean the government would grow at its, you know, grow much slower. It will continue to grow. You can't have, have all the money that's been printed and spent into the economy and pushed into the hands of bureaucrats and budgets that have been spent and written and not have the next few years. You know, our best bet is to turn this ship around when we start getting closer to the next port and start trying to convince more and more people that they either need to get involved with libertarianism or they need to get the hell out of politics. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you got to run. Thanks for joining me, man. I wanted to have you talk about some of this stuff because I know you have a different perspective than a lot of libertarians where I certainly agree with you is we definitely uh, need to come to the table and talk with Russia and both sides are going to have to make concessions they don't want to make. And uh, a lot of libertarians got to remember that no one in our government or the Russian government is going to have our perspective on this. So the, the reality yeah. is going to be very different. Uh, I got links in the description where people can follow you. Any final thoughts or anything you want to plug that you're doing coming up? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've got my daily talk show Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central. It's the Wake Up America show, and we stream it on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, uh, Twitter, everywhere. You can always find me at AP4Liberty. That's AP, the number four, AP for Liberty. Thanks a lot, Reed. Hope you're doing well. All right. Thanks, Austin. We'll do it again soon. Thanks.